Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father and a slave honors his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. For when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Uh, Verse 9 here might be the people speaking. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that, that one of you would shut the doors, the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Looking to the future, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane my name by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. For when you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept those from your hands, says the Lord Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male animal in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Powerful words, aren't they? If you're just joining with us, we are starting, well, this is the second of us maybe six or seven sermons in one of the most unlikely places you preach sermon series from the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Last week, I covered the background on this book. It is broken up into six different dialogues or disputes that take place between God and his people. You will notice that today, he's specifically focusing his attention on the priest indicting the priests for their behavior. And I, just as a side note, as we begin, and as we all fan ourselves to try to <laughs> stay comfortable, we normally think of prophecy in terms of predicting the future, foretelling events that are going to come to pass. But in reality, biblical prophecy is much more a case of the prophets functioning as prosecuting attorneys, about 90 to 95% of all the Bible is the, is the prophet indicting, condemning his people for their, their everyday crimes. Only about 10% of prophecy is predicting the future. So that's just a point to note. What is 
the matter he's condemning here. It relates to this topic of animal sacrifices. We live in a world where people are absolutely outraged at the Cincinnati Zoo for killing one animal. By all sense of modern, um, by all modern sensibilities, the practice of animal ritualized sacrifice in the Old Testament is just utterly barbaric to our society. We think, oh, this is terrible. They're, they killed all of those sheep and all of those goats. And if that's you this morning, I, I, I can understand your aversion, but you need to realize that the practice of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was a way better improvement on the, uh, on the practices of other ancient peoples of their day. I mean, remember, what the other ancient peoples in the, in the ancient Near East were sacrificing were not goats and sheep, but what? People, babies, children, virgins. If you want to go off to war and you want to curry favor with the god of war, then just... Go pick a virgin and sacrifice her on the altar. So it's just so, it's easy for us to forget how prevalent human sacrifice was in the ancient world. Um, secondly, I want you to remember that this was about, when they sacrificed animals, it was a matter of the greatest banquet of the year. I mean, very few of your rank and file, average, ordinary Israelites could afford to eat meat. Yeah, they can. <laughs> I mean, they, so the one or two times that they sacrificed the animals was a time of high celebration for the family. I mean, it's your one time to have a summer barbecue. It was a very festive occasion. And the priests, the, all the priests relied upon the sacri- temple sacrifices in order to feed their food. The Levites were not given any fields or lands or flocks or herds. Their families were 100% reliant upon the, the meat that was sacrificed there in the temple. Remember that the demands of Torah were very clear-cut. The worshiper was to bring a perfectly unblemished animal, only only the, the best animal, an offering from the prime animal of your flock or your herd. That's what you would bring. That's the way you would show that you really believe that God of the Bible was worth your best and here in the second dispute, we discovered that the people are not observing Torah. What are they doing? They are bringing animals that they want to get rid of. He says, blind animals, crippled, three-legged <laughs> animals, animals that have open sores on their bodies and discharges from their noses. Is this hyperbole? That was the first question that went through my head. It, did they really bring one-eyed sheep to the temple, or is this a case of the prophet using sarcasm, just like Jesus loved to use sarcasm? Uh, I don't know. But the key to this passage is found in this idea. The priests are condoning their behavior by accepting these animals from the people. The priest, a.k.a. the clergy, are saying, what you're doing is okay. If you want to bring to God your second best, your slipshod, shoddy worship, if you want to bring to God the kind of animals that you're trying to get rid of, it's okay. Now, before we condemn them, 
let's realize how easy it would be to justify this practice. You have a nation that's starving. When you have few flocks and few herds, you don't want to take the healthiest of your animals and go and sacrifice them. It's those animals that you need to repopulate and reproduce for your herds. And if you have a nation, as the nation was in this day, under the Persian rule, that is nearly starving to death, yeah, I can understand why they would want to bring a diseased animal. A diseased animal is going to die anyways. At least let's use its life for some holy and good purpose and putting it on the altar. Why would you take your very best and jeopardize your people's future? Uh, Put yourself in the mind of a pragmatic priest. A pragmatic priest says, hey, the reality is my family, we rely upon those sacrifices. And we have, at the end of the day, I have 10 hungry mouths to feed. If we live in an imperfect world, if you expect perfection or nothing, you'll get nothing every time. The fact that the people were willing to bring anything at all, that's not so bad. That's got to suffice. So I don't know. I always like to try to put myself in their shoes. And before we in the 21st century wag our finger at them and scold them for their bad behavior, try to understand how it is that sin justifies itself in the minds of, of real human beings like these, these were. One of my adjunct seminary professors back in, in Jackson, Mississippi, was a guy by the name of Mike Ross. Mike Ross pastored Trinity Presbyterian Church located in Jackson. It was a church, a large church, probably two to 3,000 people. It was located in a neighborhood that was pretty close to downtown, 95%, maybe even 99% of the congregation was white in a neighborhood where 99% of it was black. It's like a lot of churches in other parts of the country. It was built back 20, 30 years ago when that was the burbs and that was the attractive place to live. And over the next last several decades, all of the white people have left and, and you have a color communities there. Well, in 2002, when I was in seminary, or 2001, they had clearly outgrown their, the size of their church, and they were looking to move. But Mike Ross had the idea, instead of cashing in and selling this facility and going and moving out to the suburbs, why don't we use this place to plant a biracial church in our community? It's exactly what they did. They brought in an African-American pastor, which in the PCA, it's very rare to find one of those. They brought in an African-American pastor. They left a white pastor. They had shared equality among the church leadership. They left a core group, and it was from that church or from that group that today exists one of the most thriving, racially diverse congregations in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, I'm going to go to our denomination's general assembly here at the end of June. One of the things I am so excited about at this year's assembly, we are finally, for the first time in 35 years, going to address, at least I hope we address, our denomination's complicity in the sins of racism. There are about 20 different overtures before our assembly this year that are devoted to, um, 
to, to dealing with this. And one of the greatest things that's happened in the PCA, in my opinion, over recently is you've seen a large number, a real influx in reformed African-American ministers who are coming into our denomination, who are guys that we need. We need, I mean, they can preach. Have you ever heard them before? And, and they can sing. And when they worship on Sundays, I mean, there is energy. And they need us. If you know anything about the African-American church in America today, you know that they, they have some bad theology that really needs to be grounded. And that's what we can give them. It's a wonderful relationship. Well, I've gone off on a rabbit trail. <laughs> Coming back to the passage, I remember what Mike Ross told us, seminary students, young bucks that we were, right before we went off to the church. He said, guys, I'm warning you, every one of you will be tempted to enter into what he called an unholy covenant. An unholy covenant between pastor and congregation. You say, what is an unholy covenant? Every single member of the clergy and every single church in the world is tempted to enter into this unholy covenant. What is it? It is this. It is an agreement that I will not say things you don't want to hear so long as you keep me employed and don't give me any trouble. That's the unholy covenant that a lot of ministers have signed their name to at the bottom of the page. I will not call you out or confront you with your sin or ever rail from the pulpit about any topics and get mad at you so long as you keep signing my paycheck. That's the danger of deriving your income from the church as as far as the clergy is concerned. I hope you see This isn't new. It started 3,500 years ago with the Levites who were 100% reliant upon these people to feed their family. And today, you know, there's a lot of pastors. We realize that church is all about a consumeristic mindset. If you confront somebody about their sin, they're just going to leave. And so it's very easy to not harp on people's lack of commitment or harp on their lack of generosity, to keep everything copacetic and remember who signs your checks. That, I think, is what was happening in Malachi's day. Look how God responds to to this in verse 8. He responds in absolute indignation. He says, you would never feed this stuff to your political officials. (laughs) If you were going to visit the Persian governor of your province and take, if you were to take a gift to them, which would be very common in that culture, you would never bring him the mangy, rotten, stinking animals that you bring me. If I am a father, verse 6, where is the honor that is due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? And he says at the end of the passage, I am a great king. (laughs) He's so frustrated by the fact that his people come and give him the junk from the junk drawer. All the stuff that you would just be taken to the Salvation Army at a goodwill. That's what you bring to him, he says, in worship, in public worship. And he says, forget it. Verse 10, or whatever verse it was. 
Where is it? Verse 10. Well, this is the, this is the, the real passage. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you wouldn't light useless fires on my altar. God just said, shut the church down. <laughs> Lock the place up. Get out of here. Because he would rather have nothing than he would have you offer to him something that costs you nothing. Three things that Malachi teaches quickly, briefly. Number one, no worship at all is better than half-hearted sacrifice. No worship at all is better than half-hearted sacrifice. When God says to close the doors, it's really an amazing statement set within the context of Jewish worship since all of Jewish worship centered around the temple. And the temple was the way that you entered into the throne room of God. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us, that the temple, the earthly tabernacle and temple, was basically a portal through which you entered into heaven itself. And all of the ritualized actions which took place in the temple were in some sense a, how do I say it? They were a, they were symbolizing real-time activities that were taking place right then in the heavenly throne room above. Now, brothers and sisters, if we could peer into the heavenly throne room right now, I, we would not dare, dare to, to mutter a few half-hearted prayers to God. Would we? If we could see him right now, if we could see God, if God decided to come and sit right here on his throne, and we had seraphim and cherubim and glory shining off of his shoulders, we would not dare sing to him half-hearted, muttered songs and make promises to him that we don't intend to keep and run out of here to make, it to, to make the Dallas Cowboys kick off. We, we would never, never think that that was worship. John Calvin, the great Swiss theologian, he said that the, he wrote you know, voluminous writings. If you read the Institutes, uh, they're thick, they're good, but they're, they're hard to follow. They're pretty thick. But he said, when he boiled it all down, that the goal of gathered worship was to bring people face-to-face with God. That's why we get here, to be face-to-face with God. His aim... God's aim in worship is not that we would get new information about him, but that we would truly hear God speak and act before us, and we would truly know his presence in the service. You know, the reformers had their five solas. Sola Dea Gloria was number five, glory to God alone. Worship is supposed to be God-centered. The purpose of worship is to honor God, and nothing honors God, John Calvin said, as much as is the fear of God, which whenever they talk about the fear of God, they're not talking about this servile scaredness that we have, but it's just a sense of being blown away, thunderstruck by awe and wonder that you're face-to-face with God. And here's what he says, the goal of gathered worship is to make God spiritually real to your hearts. Now, the Bible is very clear that God always wants our hearts. That's the one part of us he's always seeking after. Only when he has our hearts does he truly have us. Consider these verses. The Lord sees, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7, 
The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to discover those whose heart is blameless toward him. That's Second Chronicles 16.9. In, in Psalm 147 verse 10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse. His pleasure is not in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And those who hope in his steadfast love. Now the one thing I have. One of the things I have learned. Now being a Christian for 30 some years. Is whenever God doesn't have my heart. It is very rare that I see him face to face. Whenever my heart is on Sunday morning at Cowboy Stadium, or is, is at the Tom Petty concert, or is at, whenever my heart is somewhere other than, than truly here, fully engaged, I'm not going to see him on his royal throne. I'm going to sit here looking at my watch, wondering when do we get out of here? And man, it's really hot. Let's get out of here soon. It seems like God rarely shows himself and his glory to us when our hearts are far from him. One of the things that frustrates me more than anything else in life is how God can have my heart one Sunday and then my heart can be completely somewhere else the next. Don't you feel that way? I mean, one Sunday you're totally dialed in to Jesus. And then, I mean, the next... You're just going through the motions. I think he understands that real spiritual plight of ours. But the thing is, is if we grow satisfied with it, if we become satisfied by our crushing boredom and our half-hearted singing and our half-hearted prayers, then we really do have to worry about him saying, shut the doors and get out of here. Pack up the clarinets and the flutes (laughs) and see ya. Would he ever say that to us? It's a haunting question that I think you can't read this passage without asking. Would he ever say to us, shut the doors and go home? Because I don't want it anymore. Okay, number two. This is closely connected to the previous point. Our failure to give God the honor, the weightiness, the, the glory that he is due is ultimately a reflection of our, fa- our failure to Properly value him. I mean, the whole the old English word worship is derived from the compound words worth-ship. I mean, the way that you worship is you understand the value of that thing. I used this illustration a few years back. A woman inherits a piece of jewelry from her mother. It's a, it's a nice piece. It's, uh, a lot of you women have done the same when your mom passed away or your grandmother passed away. In Aaron's case, her grandmother gave her a beautiful pearl string necklace. You probably have uh, an heirloom piece of jewelry that was passed down to you. Well, she gets the piece of jewelry, and it's nice. It's, it's okay. She puts it in the top of her drawer in her bureau and uh, forgets about it until several years later when she's rummaging around. Oh, yeah, this thing. It's not bad. I guess I'll... I'll take it to the jeweler. She, she decides to take it to the jeweler to see if it's worth anything. She walks in and the jeweler, he puts his eye loop on and he starts to examine the piece of jewelry and the eye loop pops out. <laughs> he, he starts to have um, 
a belabored breathing and beads of sweat start to show on his forehead. He steps back into the back of his shop and he he gets online and he researches and he, he sees, he notices that this is a historic piece. This is a long lost priceless treasure worth more than all of the jewelry he had sold in his store for the last 25 years. His hands begin to tremble. His entire humanity is wrapped up around this piece that he's holding in his hands. What is he doing? He's worshiping. He's realizing that within his hands is something more valuable than anything he's ever touched before. And he's thunderstruck. And she needs to be too. <laughs> and once this woman realizes, once it begins to dawn on her what she has in her possession, it's supposed to change her life forever. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, every Sunday, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to come and rehearse and recollect and reassess the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, the continual intercession, as we sang about in our third hymn, and, and his return to judge the living and the dead and the new. We're supposed to be continually reminding ourselves and, and uh, analyzing it, looking at it at its different angles, letting the eye loop pop out, getting a bigger eye loop, <laughs> and, and, and letting that move our affections. It's not about new information. It's, it's a summons to let your memory awake again in light of all that Jesus Christ has done for you. Every worship service ought to be this opportunity to remember and rejoice. And so I'm just stunned when I read um, or when I hear, ever heard this before? I hate going to church. The church is full of hypocrites. It's, it's boring me out of my mind. I don't want, I don't want to be there anymore. Who, who's, who's heard that? Who said that before? Is that, was that Bill Mayer? Did Bill Mayer say that? Was that Richard Dawkins, the great atheist? No, that was God who said that. That's what God said. And it's a haunting question. Would he ever say that to us? Our failure to give God the honor he is due, is, it ultimately reflects our failure to... Uh, Properly evaluate him. Thirdly and lastly and briefly, very briefly. <laughs> Verse 11. Let's read it together. This is what he has always been aiming at. Verse 11. He says, My name will be great among the nations for from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. I, I just presume that Part of God's grand design was the nations were supposed to watch Israel worshiping. And in doing so, they would see that they didn't, these people weren't worshiping a two-bit deity. By, by virtue of the sacrifice and the honor that they brought to him, they would realize that this God is, is different than, he's not a two-bit deity. He's not a little plastic figurine, world's best God. No, they would see how truly magnificent this God was, and they would come to know him. Well, Jesus in John chapter 4 says, the day is coming when we're no longer going to dispute about, do I worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, 
in Samaria, or do we worship on the mountain down in Jerusalem? But a day is coming where people are going to be offering up incense and true worship to me all around the world, from wherever the sun rises to wherever the sun sets. What God is looking for is true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's always been looking for. That's always been what he's aiming for. We get to participate in that. We really ought to be praying for, this keeps coming loose, for others to participate in it. The back of the bulletin announcement, you will see the write-up on Thomas and Melissa Manning, who are coming to Boise here in a couple of, they're already in Boise, but they're coming to All Saints in a couple of weeks, missionaries to the Middle East. Tom reminded me that uh, Ramadan begins tomorrow. Did you? Yeah, Ramadan begins tomorrow. 30 days of fasting and praying. If you talk to Christian missionaries in the Middle East, they'll tell you that one of the most spiritually opportune moments for Muslims to, to believe the gospel is, is during this long, brutal fasting session that they do during Ramadan. So what Tom pointed me to, and I'm going to point you to, is a prayer guide to pray for you know, the nations, particularly Muslims. Go to, here is the website that I'll give you, if you want to get this prayer guide, called to pray, all one word, called to pray, dot net. Frontiers Ministry, which is a sending group to Muslims, Muslim peoples, has put together this, this excellent prayer guide. Because John 3.16 doesn't read, for God so loved Israel that he sent his only begotten son. It reads, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And from, from the rising of the sun to its setting, may the name of the Lord be praised. Amen.